How do you define yourself? What do you say to people at parties? <laughs> My name is Marcy Meth and I'm a classically trained singer and a creative. How did you arrive at the term creative? Because I think a lot of singers are focused on singing and I'm focused on making. Right. Is that an easy term to say when you're sort of saying it to people who don't know you, when you're introducing yourself? No, they sort of have the same face that you just had when I And what do you think that face is? It, they usually look a little shocked um, or surprised, but, um, but I think it's important to stay because I, I don't feel like just a singer. And I, it, to me, it's really very important to make something and, that's, and make something that says something today. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, a conversation between audience and artists intended to demystify the classical music and opera art form. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. It's available via Spotify and Audioboom. That way, you'll hear about the latest podcasts as they become available. Be sure to follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter or on Facebook, and you'll find the blog at thoroughlygood.me. At the time of recording this podcast, number 55, featuring a conversation between me and Marcy Meth, London was in the grip of some fairly intense heat. The Royal Albert Hall Cafe was a little bit cooler and slightly more comfortable space to be, uh, but when we met, it was also incredibly noisy, as you'll hear in the conversation that follows. Having said all of that, the conversation that Marcy and I had was, as I recall and as I listen back now, incredibly focused. We talked about Marcy's new crowdfunded CD, The Wild Song, a combination of folk songs set to music by Benjamin Britten, interspersed with poetry by Yeats, read by Simon Russell Beale, all of it produced at the Britten studio at Snake Maltings in Suffolk in 2016. By the time the podcast came to be published, things had moved on a little in the world, making the climate-related message behind The Wild Song all the more potent. Since July, a teenage climate change protester has traversed the Atlantic in a sailing boat. The Amazon rainforest is on fire, with the President of Brazil refusing French help to extinguish the blaze until supposedly critical comments about the Brazilian President are attracted by Emmanuel Macron. And today, just so the moment is marked, you understand, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has seen fit to prorogue Parliament in a bid to limit the time available for MPs to stop a no-deal Brexit. The world, it seems to me, is screaming out through the radios and the televisions. What I've been brought up to understand was the right way to respond to a crisis is apparently not the right way anymore. People are marching to a different beat, one that leaves me feeling rather lonely, as it happens. Returning to Marcy's podcast then and listening back to some of Britain's settings and the gentle undulating precision of Simon Russell Beale's delivery has been a tonic, rooting me back in a part of the world I imagine in my mind's eye, somewhere I feel calm again, a place in my mind where I find a renewed sense of purpose. That is the power that Britain's music and the voices of Simon Russell Beale and Marcy Meth have on me as I listen. In our conversation, Marcy and I explored what drew her to Britain's music in the first place, what drew her to Snape, and how she went about bringing journalists, impresarios and radio producers to the attention of her work. A hard-backed CD and booklet that makes up the wild song. Uh, I'm, I'm interested because I wonder whether that is something that a lot of singers who are 
uh, I don't want I very came came very close to saying emerging singer um, but a lot of new singers have to sort of grapple with how to describe themselves and have to have to think about doing more than just the craft do, do, uh, my assumption is is that a lot of new artists have to think wider than just singing I don't know if most do I think the main path for most singers is get into some kind of a young artist program and then you know, perform as much as possible. And I don't think there's a lot of thought that goes into why am I doing this really? And is there something I, I need to say? And for me, that's something that I've come to over time, I would, yeah, over time. And was, was there a critical point? Was there a point where, where you went, right, okay, this is what I'm doing? Um, well, with the wild song it this album was it's really how i feel about the world today and it's something that britain i believe had in his mind i think he he said that you know an artist can't be locked up in an ivory tower they have to be of this world and there has to be a message in every work how did you come to it it would be really easy for me to sort of break it down into uh, its constituent parts but because you've said what you've said it would be really crass to do that so how did you come to well because it would be a really obvious uh, an obvious routine how did you come to Britain's songs then um, well I I love Britain as a composer and I I in his folk song arrangements in particular I think you can feel his connection with the earth and that was something that I really, really liked. And there's one song that I, that a friend of mine said, you know, you, you must record that song. And so... I, want to get, I now want to guess. <laughs> yeah. I want to now, now want to guess what it was. Can I do that? Would that be really awful? Was it? Please tell me it was... Sail on, sail on. Am I wrong? That is one of my favourites. Right. But that is not, not the... Okay, the song a... that he said I should record. Uh, okay, well then you're going to have to tell me. It's the trees they grow so high. Oh. Father, dearest father, you've done to me great wrong. You've tied me to a boy when you know he is too young. Oh, daughter, dearest daughter, if you wait a little while, a lady you shall be. So the first one? Yes, it is the first one. Uh, what do you... Tell me about that, and then I'll tell you what I made of it when I heard it. Um, well, the f- it's, I think it's kind of shocking piece, because there are not a lot of songs in the song repertoire where the singer begins by themselves. And so that's one interesting part of it, and also ends by themselves. And the other part is that the story is quite shocking it's quite shocking and you in the beginning the music doesn't really lend to any element of surprise it's just kind of lovely <laughs> it is absolutely lovely and then all of a sudden you're, you're in shock and I think Britain was really genius when he wrote that song but the way he structured it because it, it builds sort of slowly and then it sort of dies like the boy in the song it's from me that it has so obviously that was the first one that I heard because I listened to it as a complete album uh, which given its makeup it struck me as a really important thing to do because there was a there were, to me it struck me there was an implicit narrative throughout it so I needed to listen to it in its entirety um, so because that was the first one that I heard I was struck by Britain and I don't know very much Britain vocal you know as in voice and piano music I was struck by uh, the theatricalness of it it has an incredibly theatrical ending which is uh, very descriptive descriptive and evocative but actually quite dark 
It is quite dark. Do you find that? Um, do you find that appealing as a performer? Well, I like songs that tell us stories, and so it, there's something that you have to communicate with the audience. And Does that make it easier then? For me, yes, yes. I, I love songs that tell stories. Because there's direction. Yes, and it gives you something that you must communicate. Uh, so you were you were drawn to these because of his connection with the earth. Which then begs the question, what was it about that sort of nature thing or the earth that made you want to create this? I feel as though I haven't really got to that yet. Um, well, Britain, Britain started writing these songs when he was in America, in exile. And he was homesick. And he was dreadfully homesick, I would say. And I think he... he he wanted to be in touch with Suffolk, and he could do that through music. And so he, he started writing these songs, and I think the songs are very much linked to the land in Suffolk, to Snape, to Oldborough, and I think you can hear it in the songs. And it, that, that he, he said all of his music came from there, so he, it's kind of in the music and I think especially in his folk songs because folk songs were I mean the songs the melodies were made up by people who lived you know they were far, by farmers basically so had you heard the folk songs before you went to Suffolk or did you go to Suffolk first before you heard the folk songs I knew the songs first okay and how long are there's a reason I'm being quite forensic how yes. long after you first heard the songs did you go to East Suffolk? About a year later. Or uh, two years later. The reason I ask is because when I hear Britain, I think of East Suffolk, and there is something about East Suffolk that is quite unusual and a bit... Um, I want to say Spartan. That isn't the right word, but it's sort of... There's, there's almost sort of a bleak kind of beauty about East Suffolk, which I find incredibly appealing because it's very simple. It's like a very well-chosen, unfussy typeface, and I find that rather alluring. Um, when I hear Britain's music, it is as though, especially Grimes, um, especially any chamber music, I hear a sort of a, a sort of a stripped-back musical language that appears to equate to the Suffolk landscape and I'm wondering whether that resonates with you whether whether you share that absolutely and that's why I went there because I wanted to record the album there and I wanted to do everything for the album in Snape because for me the project is rooted there and it didn't make any sense to record it anywhere else <laughs> Um, when you, so when you went, to, uh, talk me through when you went, did you go for it? So Snape and Oldborough is like, that's my adopted home. That's where, I, that's where my heart literally beats faster, especially when I drive down the road towards the beach. So that's why I'm being quite forensic about this as well. Um, how long after you first went there did you end up recording it, or was that the first time that you went? I went in January of 2015. And we recorded in July of 16. Oh, not long after that? No. Right. I went there to investigate. It was, it was a, a recce. It was it a recce. Was, it was a pilgrimage of right. sorts. Right, okay. Yes. What did you do on the pilgrimage? Talk me through the pilgrimage. Um, well, I, I just, I, wa I walked around. I spent yeah. a lot of time walking around. And I spoke with the woman who, who rents out the Britain studio. And I... I spoke with her about dates when we would record. Yeah. Uh, what were your impressions then of Oldborough when you went? That it's bleak, and there's there is there is a kind of there's a kind of melancholy there. In in the sea, in the coast, the pebbles on the beach, um, in the marshes. I really love the marshes. <laughs> I, I, really to, to me, it's um, it's a magical place, and I I can really understand why Britain needed to be there to compose. He, he said it was too noisy in London. Yeah. Early 
quite a there is a magical calmness about the place which is uh, the last time I went and I sat on the beach uh, I cried I mean that was how that was how much of an emotional release it was and, and I and I wondered to what extent that uh, is me building up loads of memories and telling myself loads of stories around Aldra or whether there is something about that particular location uh, in comparison to London as you pointed out I, that's I've often sort of grappled with that it's a sort of a way of me sort of trying to make sure that I'm being objective does that does that make sense yes um, uh, so tell me about I still haven't really got to to why you wanted to do that I know you told me about the earth about wanting to record it in snake but why did you why this I think Britain had a message and you probably know he really liked birds and um, he, he went on composing walks in nature after lunch every day and I think that he, his, he meant for us to remember this connection with the earth and, and I wanted, I, it's a very timely message and I wanted to say it in my own way in music because I'm not Greta Thunberg, I'm, I'm not political in that way. Um, but I'm political in this way, and, um, and that's why I made the album. So there's a there's a personal motivation. For you. There's a personal. A personal motivation. For you. Yes, yes. Um, tell me about your path. You live in Paris. You I come do. from America. Yes. Tell me about your path to, to Paris. Um, well, originally I went to Paris on an exchange program with Stanford University, and I was there for a year. And then I had to go back to Stanford to finish my studies. And when I finished, I thought, okay, as a singer, is it better to move to New York, or is it better to move to Europe and to Paris? And I decided Paris was much better, much better than New York. And so. I moved to Paris and then after I was in Paris for a couple of years I decided that I really wanted to go to school in London so then I came here but bizarrely enough I felt more foreign here than I did in Paris and when I finished my studies here I I went back to Paris before we started recording the interview I'm reminded that that you said that you, that you didn't understand the language here <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd like you to unpack that for me, please. What do you mean by that? We um, speak the same language. What we do. You speak, don't understand. We, we do speak the same language. It, it was a joke, of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> um, no, I just I I have to like open my ears when I get here. It's I think because I'm used to hearing French all the time, and and it's obviously not the same accent. So. I what do, do you hear then? Do you? I mean, is it an aggressive sound? Is it? Uh, is it just very fast? Is it? Can you describe what it is that you hear? Because it sounds as though you actually have a fresh perspective. It's actually very beautiful. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, and um, it makes me pay more attention to language. Gosh, even those people who are not using it. I mean, yeah. Is this on the tube? Or is this just people that you're staying with? No, it's just people that I meet. Right. Yes. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody describe being in London like that, but you still feel as though you're a foreigner in the city. Yes. I, it's cu cultural. I mean, American culture and British culture are so different. You know, there's... There, there, I feel an element of, of class in, in, in England that I, I don't feel in America. It's, do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I, yes, I do, and I'm sort of, I'm sort of surprised by that because I often, I often experience that sense of class and sophistication and and elegance um, when I go to Europe. So, you know, most recently I went to Verbier, I went to classical music concerts in Verbier, and I had this sort of sense of, actually, this is the way to do classical music concerts. 
this feels like my kind of scene. Everybody is really cool and really intelligent and very well informed. They're having intelligent conversations and it doesn't feel like a bun fight here. You know, <laughs> it's all very relaxed. Uh, and so there is an air of sophistication, not only amongst the audience, but amongst those performers. So I get that when I go abroad, but when I come back home, I just say, oh God, it's so, <laughs> so messy and we're always running around everywhere and everything is completely balled up here. That, that's kind of how I, how I experience it. So to hear that you would, you, you would experience London as a cultural destination, I find slightly bemusing. Well, there, there's a lot of culture here. <laughs> yeah, maybe that. Okay, so maybe it's because I'm, um, I'm taking it for granted. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it is. In Chester town there lived a brisk young widow, for beauty and fine clothes, not she was proper, stout and tall, her fingers long and small. She's a comely dame with all, she's a brisk young widow. A lover soon there came, a brisk young farmer. What are you most proud of with the album? I'm most proud of the mix because I wanted to make something that was different. And um, I'm very fortunate I was able to convince some rather wonderful people to work with me. And yes, I'm, I'm proud of Simon the Russell result. Beale, yes. Who is, I have to say, when you're listening at eight o'clock in the morning, as I was <laughs> to hear Simon Russell Beale, it's like, oh, hello. Um, how, did you, how did you go about persuading him? I... I sent a letter to his agent. Ah, yes. letter writing. Did you handwrite it as you did with me? Actually, <laughs> that contact was given to me by email. Right. And sometimes I do have to write emails, you know, depending on the contact. Um, and I and I sent him a presentation. I made a PowerPoint presentation. <gasps> a PowerPoint yes. presentation. Yeah, because, can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine that? This gorgeous <laughs> Because right. my friend Fred Alden, who um, worked with me on the Wild Song, is a businessman, right. and he he taught me a very interesting approach to to producing, actually, because I produced it, and I'd never produced anything like this before and um, he told me you know you need to write the pitch you have to tell the story so I, I told the story he says use bullet points <laughs> bullet points you know to me that's completely foreign <laughs> bullet points what are bullet points so are they quite restrictive so it made me focus my ideas and and it was a very good exercise actually and and it worked. It worked. Um, his agent called me. She says, "You know, Simon loves the project. Of course, he'll do it." Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, oh my goodness!" Are you talking to the right Simon? <laughs> so that was really exciting, and and actually, Michael Dan and I also contacted by email. Um, in that case, I. On Michael's website, old website, used to be able to order a score. And I had ordered some scores in the past, and I had asked his assistant to transpose them for me. So I sort of knew his assistant. And when I contacted Michael, I just sent the assistant an email, and I asked him, would you show this to Michael? And um, I waited 10 days. <laughs> your, your face is falling. Like, that's yeah, a long time I mean, to wait. it was. That's it was for me because you know I I like everything to happen right away. Okay. Um, yes, I recognise that. Uh, Ten days was a got long Simon time. On board, then? Uh, actually, no. I got Michael on board first. Okay. Um, and ten days, I I thought, okay, well, you know, it's, I've lost it. I mean, lost that possibility. And um, and then he wrote back. He's like, Marcy, I've been working on a project. I'm so sorry. I would love to do this project with you. So that was, you know, for me, that was an amazing moment. Uh, how did you come by Michael? I mean, 
mean, I understand that you emailed him, waited 10 days, and then he said yes. <laughs> but as in, how did, you, how did you think to work with him? How did um, you come by him? I don't know if you've ever seen the film Vanity Fair. Um, with I suspect not. With Reese Witherspoon. No, I haven't. But it has these kind of Baroque arias in it. And I, I really love the music in that film. And Michael did the music for that film. And I thought when I saw it that, you know, one day I would really like to work with Michael Tana. And it, I kept it in the back of my head. And when I started thinking about, you know, who might I ask to compose for the Wild Song, I thought, you know, Britton was a film composer at the beginning of his career. It makes sense to ask a film composer to do this. And then I thought, my God. And why Simon then? I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, really, and an obvious answer. Obviously, it's a great choice. I'm not saying that. It's <laughs> a great, great choice. choice. But why, why did you sing Actually, in the beginning, I wanted a woman to do it. He's your second choice. No, 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 no. But I, dis- I, I hadn't asked anyone yet, but I discussed it with Anna Tilbrook, who played for the album. And, and she said, you know, Marcy, in contrast to your voice, it would be better to have a man's voice. And she was 100% right about that. Had you known each other before, then? Not, not you and Anna, I mean you and Simon. No, no. So this was absolutely a cold pitch? No. Essentially it was a cold pitch? Not completely, because Anna knows Simon's brother. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Anna had said anything to Simon's brother. No, no, no. So, <laughs> I, so essentially it was a cold pitch. But also, you know, Simon does things like this. He, he I don't know if you've ever seen him read poetry. I saw him, yes you have. Um, he, he does things like this. The, what I'm getting at is that um, as a self-employed person I often have to send cold pictures to people. Yes, and the process of writing that, uh, there's a stage or various stages that I go through when I'm contacting people that I'd like to work with or do work for uh, and it's a, a, a range of um, emotions, a lot of them negative, uh, and and if I end up sending the email to the individual that I've never met before, then it's a miracle because I've obviously got through those stages of procrastination, negative thinking, and all of that stuff. Uh, and yet, I don't get any sense from you that there were any doubts or any challenges that this was just something that you needed to do, and you did it, and then you said yes. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I see what you mean, and. For me, asking someone to participate, it, I just do it. And, <laughs> and if they say yes, wonderful. And, and if what, they and don't what? respond, yeah. which they often don't. Right, so there have been non-responses. You know, in this, the creation of the Wild Song, I would say of all of the requests that I've sent, you know, maybe, I don't know, 3% responded. I. I, I just don't feel any kind of rejection when they don't respond because I think people are just bombarded today. But you may not feel re- rejection, but don't you feel a sense of entitlement? Because I do. I think, I, excuse me, I've emailed your PowerPoint presentation. Um, I, I would like a response, even if it's no. Tell me it's no. I'm quite reluctant. Do you see what I mean? Yes, I, I really understand that. Well, I find it... Actually, I pity them when they don't respond because it means that their mother didn't teach them, you know, manners. Right. (laughs) But still, that doesn't bother you. No. So the difference between us, I mean, I'm treating this now like therapy. I hope that's okay with you, (laughs) as opposed to a piece of PR for you. But but the difference between us is that if, as is demonstrated with an email exchange with the head of press at BBC Proms recently when I asked for a free ticket not a free ticket a press ticket it's important um, and, uh, and I know the head of press and she's lovely and I totally recognise that she's very busy but also it's me we used a word together why haven't you responded and days went past and she didn't respond and I was getting more and more annoyed 
and 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 so I emailed again and went, excuse me, you haven't responded, which is not really the right thing to do. Um, and then a few more days went past, and then she said, oh, I'm really sorry, it just went into the wrong folder. <laughs> yes, I, I think... <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yes, so, so I think it between, happens. Yeah, you know, yeah. people get so many emails today. Yeah. And I, it's not 99% of the time. It's not about you or not about me it's just Many about have said the same you know thing. i i i wrote a lot of you know a lot of letters yeah. and to me that someone would not respond is just completely shocking actually but um, but it's not sufficiently so that, that that motivates you to do the same thing that i do no i just keep writing the letters right <laughs> I just so because one of them, <laughs> one of them is going to work. I, I, I made up a hashtag: never give up. Right. It's I, I really believe that you must never give up. But at some point you're going to have to. Aren't you? But, no, I don't mean you personally, but actually that that mentality yes. that demands that at some point some rational thinking has to kick in and go. Actually, you've pursued this path and it's not working. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are things you know. I've, if I handwrite a letter. I send an email to remind the person that I sent the letter, uh-huh. and they don't respond. I just let it go. It's, I just has that always yeah. been the case. Yes. Wow, wow! Your mum sounds lovely. She is. <laughs> yes. She is. Yeah, she's clarify, listening. Clarify, clarify. <laughs> she is. She is. I mean, um, I, I try my best, and and sometimes, you know, I I. I feel for that situation with the, the tickets because there are times when I feel like I'm so close, but no cigar, you know? <laughs> and, and in those particular cases, you know, in the end I just tell myself, okay, well that was not meant to be. There's another door that will open. So I, I, that's the way I function. Never give all the heart. For love will hardly seem worth thinking of to passionate women if it seems certain, and they never dream that it fades out from kiss to kiss. For everything that's lovely is but a brief, dreamy, kind delight. Oh, never give the heart outright, for they, for all smooth lips can say, have given their hearts up to the play, and who could play it well enough if deaf and dumb and blind with love? He that made this knows all the cost, for he gave all his heart and lost. would you give yourself if you were starting this again? I realise that's quite that's quite a tough question, but if you were to spend disbelief and imagine yourself at the beginning of the project in the first place? I would tell the photographer to take a very big picture for the cover of the album. That the, al- the cover must be much bigger than actually appears. I didn't know that, and that cost me about a year, a year it's hard to believe a little thing like that but um, I can show you on the album so yes. it's like a little book yeah. and when and they it's gorgeous can we just say Obviously, thank you I've so left much the, left the CD in the player it's the okay <laughs> a lot of love went into the physical the making of the physical object because that was very important to me um, and and it's the reason I didn't give it to a label because Labels today, they just, you know, they, they make a thing. The thing is not that important. And I, I, wanted, I wanted to translate all of the songs into French so I knew the booklet would have to be thick. And, and so I, I had to make it myself. Um, and I told the photographer, <laughs> my dear friend Lucy, to take a square picture because in my brain, CDs are square. 
No, they're not square. No, they're not, they're no, not no, at all. No, newsflash, no. they're not. No, newsflash. <laughs> they used to be square. Well, that, you know, well, in the that plastic does, cases. Yeah, that butter's yes. no parsnip. But that's, <laughs> you know, and so um, she took this beautiful picture that was square, and there were no books like this that were square, so we had to re-frame um, the cover. And um, I actually worked with a company who was going to cut my elbow off the cover of the album. So then well, I. Kind of no, can you imagine they? Yeah, no, no. That was that was. So I had to stop working with them. I, I'd already given them money to. We were about to go to press. That was last July. Okay. And so we stopped that, and I had to find another company to print the album. Was that a difficult conversation? Were they, did they understand? Um, it was, it it was worth five migraines, let's put it that way. <laughs> and um, I then I went through the process of looking for another company to press the album and that took about six months. And But I found this a company that works with the Sony factory in Austria. So I think they did a beautiful job and I'm really, really happy. With I mean, how it I, turned out. I have to tell you, I didn't, I didn't anticipate there being quite, quite such a story behind it. All <laughs> I was uh, interested in was, was what you learned from, from the process. Yes. Uh, which um, I, I found that really interesting. I think what I really like about it is that it's extremely tactile. Uh, at a point in time when classical music artists are being encouraged to think about streaming more. So it's an extremely tactile thing, which in itself makes you want to listen to it. And, and that's me responding as an audience, but yeah, as a listener, Thank when, you. when you receive it, you just think, oh, I've no idea what it sounds like. I mean, it could be just you reading out the telephone directory, but I still want to listen to it because it feels really nice in the hand. Is that the intention? Yes. Oh. Then, uh, <laughs> Yay. <I would> say, <laughs> it was worth it. I would then. say mission accomplished. <laughs> um, what was the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, uh, about it? It feels as though it's a statement. Is that the other? Is that the other intention for the for the design of the product? It is. It is. Um, it's a statement about our connection with nature, and I find it rather interesting that it coincides with the climate summits. And um, that, of course, I could not have known when I started. But it, it there is a message. There is a message, and and it's a message that that Britain, uh, Britain believed in. You know, he in the 1952 festival, he showed three films by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and I think in 1952 that was quite revolutionary. I mean, there aren't any proms today that are showing environmental films, to my knowledge, and. I think there should be. I think that classical music needs to be active. That there needs to be there needs to be more activism. I mean, there there are some artists that do make a case for certain things, but I do you mean I wish in the concert hall? Do you mean bringing the message to the concert hall? Y- yes. Do you mean artists? Uh, uh, participating in endeavours where that message is being both, good. both. I think it should be in the concert hall. Maybe, I mean, I think there obviously there are people who would disagree with me. But who do you think would disagree? What would they be saying? They would say that that's not a place for that. That you know we shouldn't have politics in classical music. But. Britain, but Britain was political. Yeah. He really was, and and he he he, he was a pacifist, and it, it was it was very clear in his mu- in his music and in his speech. And I I think it's important. Some people would say that it won't sell tickets. It wouldn't sell tickets. Yeah. I think it would. Right. You think it would galvanise people in a way that perhaps. An absence of politics wouldn't. I, I mean, I think you'd be hard pressed today to find someone at the Royal Albert Hall who would deny climate change. And I, I think this particular audience is receptive to it. 
I think I wonder whether there are other forces at play though that it's not <clears throat> I'm not disagreeing with you I'm merely presenting a different view but there are other forces uh, to do with certainly around the proms to do with um, broadcasting audience as in the broadcast audience audience appreciation reach that kind of thing and and this sort of still uh, this assumption that we need to make the genre more appealing to a younger audience and that means stripping it right back so that nothing is too complicated and uh, too, do you understand what I mean? Yes. Uh, whereas actually what you're saying is that I think is by bringing in all of those other um, universal themes into the concept experience that actually it increases its relevance and therefore it's a wider appeal. I mean I think that would bring younger people in. I mean, look at yeah. who's striking with Greta. Yeah. They're the young people. It's important to them. And, yeah, it's important to me. Uh, I haven't asked you about letter writing. Uh, and in order to do that, I mean, I know that we've touched on it, but in order to do that, I have to tell you that you are the only person I know, apart from myself, <laughs> who writes letters. And there is a joyous thing to receive something uh, which is handwritten, it's overlooked. I think a lot of people overwrite, overlook it. Um, I think it helps when your handwriting is beautiful and it's easy on the eye. I think it probably helps, uh, but uh, it makes it makes quite a bold impression. I think now it it increases cut through. I. There's something, when you see someone's handwriting, you see part of them, because everyone writes differently. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of sad with email, that there's no humanity in an email. And actually, I think that's why a lot of people don't read their email, because it's, you know, the, just a typeface. Whereas when you write a letter, or when you receive a letter, you you can feel that person's presence and when when I was young I used to correspond with a friend of mine who I was very young in in Germany and I used to have to wait weeks to get her letters and there was something thrilling about getting a letter and I to this day when I receive a handwritten letter I'm like yes <laughs> I love even it. it I, <laughs> yes, I absolutely love that. My my mother always gave me handwritten cards for my birthday, and it it means something. She still does, you know. And I I love that. I it's important to me, and that's why um, when I contacted journalists about the album, I I handwrote all of the letters, and I can tell you that it was absolutely exhausting. <laughs> Because I wrote a lot of letters and I put a lot of detail into the letters, but um, and I I don't know if did I they think respond? some the did. Response rate. It it wasn't high, but I I got a letter from Alex Ross, the New Yorker. <gasps> did you? He's like a hero. Yes. He's like a it, rock star. It was an email. Yeah, but to me. Yeah. That was. A huge victory. Yeah, totally. You know, sorry, uh, totally. He, he hasn't written about the wild song yet. No, but you have received an email from Alex Ross. But I have received an email yeah, from yeah, Alex yeah, Ross, yeah. and that's I, basically an endorsement. I, I have to tell you that that made my year. Yeah, yeah, I know. I totally yes, understand. Yes, and that. I believe it's because I handwrote the letter, and unfortunately. When you sent me your address, yeah. I was in Copenhagen. Oh, that's right, because it arrived yes. in this envelope. Yes, that funny envelope. Covered which I in stamps. I, as, and now that you know me, you, you can just imagine that I would never, yeah, that was slightly ever, terrifying. when I saw that envelope, I was like, oh my God. Yeah, I, would I never, thought, wow, she's I keen. Would, I would never do that. But normally, I, I, I wrapped all of the albums with some very beautiful Japanese paper and I, I pressed flowers and I, I glued them to the album. I, I couldn't do it because I was in Copenhagen and I didn't have my my kit with me. But um, And I think it had an impact. Uh, 
one theater director that I'm talking to about um, doing a production of The Wild Song with, he, he said he kept my letter. <laughs> and he, he, he kept the packaging because he, it, it was beautiful. And well, so it, it, does, it, do, and, it, does, it does work, I think, with the, with the right audience. I mean, some people, I think, just don't care. But um, but it is different. But it has to be said. It is different from most of the invitations I receive. I mean, generally speaking, I don't receive very much in the post. This is me basically complaining. Um, uh, I get contacted by lots of PRs who think that I'm interested in pop music and rock music, and and also get me to write about things that bear absolutely no resemblance to what I'm, you know, passionate about, which just demonstrates they haven't done any research whatsoever and they haven't thought about the audience and uh, to receive something that is so completely different is really important because it has impact and and actually the message I think that you gave was do be sure to read the booklet before you listen to the album (laughs) I I really appreciated being given some explicit instructions because I thought well okay alright then well seeing as you said that then I will um, uh, and I, I think that's quite unusual and refreshing. Um, I wonder how it's helped you. Well, I think time will tell on that. Um, but it's just, it's part of me. It's who I am. And I, I couldn't do it any other way. And I, I thought that if I just send it, you know, via email to Alex Ross, he will just throw my email away. And you know, maybe that would have been the case. And that I, I do believe he responded because the letter was handwritten and the album was wrapped with... But you must have been able to get his postal address then. Not that I'm asking you to tell me what it is, because <laughs> I think that would be a bit weird. But you must have emailed him to ask for his postal address. No, I just sent it to The New Yorker. Oh, my God. <laughs> we are so I, alike. <laughs> I, I, I just... I did that with... You do that kind of thing, then. You I just did think, it well, with I'll just everyone. do it. Wow. I followed up by email, but I actually I didn't follow up with Alex Ross. I really did. Uh, when I was looking for work experience as a radio producer, I wrote to lots of different radio stations. I don't know how many. Um, and I just wanted some work experience. I was 34 at the time. I thought, I don't think I'm getting. No, no, I was 30, and I seemed terribly old to be doing work experience. But um, I emailed. My, I, I wrote my a, a letter, a covering letter with my CV, and <clears throat> at that time, it was 2005, I thought, well, they must get loads of letters, so I know what I'll do. I will print my CV and my letter on bright yellow paper. That's what I'll do, and then I'll open the envelope and go, oh, my God, this is on bright yellow paper. What, who does this? And... Um, and I did that, and now I got and one radio station responded. That was LBC, uh, and I got to work with Sandy Toxvig. And the, the day that I started working with Sandy Toxvig, she said to me, "Oh, the reason that we said yesterday uh, said said yes to you was because you had printed it on yellow paper." I thought, "Well, there you are. They were, that, that's what you have to do. You have to you have to think about the audience." Uh, it seems like a really odd, a really obvious learning point, but but we are alike clearly. Uh, only the only thing that I'm slightly jealous of is that you've had a response from Alex Ross and I haven't. Uh, but you I'm, haven't yet. I haven't well, yet. It would help yes. if I'd emailed him, <laughs> I have to say. But maybe I will now with a link to this. Oliver Cromley buried and dead. Hee-haw, buried and dead. There grew an old apple tree over his head. Hee-haw, over his head. Ready to fall, ee-ho, ready to fall. There came an old woman to gather them all, ee-ho, gather them all. Oliver rose and gave her a drop, ee-ho, gave her a drop, which made the old woman go hippity hop, ee-ho, hippity hop. The saddle and bridle they lie on the shelf, ee-ho, lie on the shelf. If you want to eat more, you can sing it yourself, ee-ho, sing it yourself. You say that there's going to be a production. I'm working on it. You're working on it. What does that mean? <laughs> when, when might we see it? I, I don't know when you will see it, but I've, I'm talking to some theatres about it, and um, there are two that are interested. 
So is this a production which is already sort of fleshed out, or is it the idea of producing a theatrical version? Um, I don't know if you saw this part, but after I had already recorded the album, and before Michael Dana composed, I read an article in the yes. New York Times. Yes, I had read that yes. bit, but maybe um, I forgot. And it was written by James Rebanks, who yes. is a very well-known shepherd. Yes. And um, when I read that article, I thought, James is the wild song. I have to speak with him. So I sent him a handwritten letter. I sent it to his farm, and it was at the end of March. And... 2017 and I waited a long time because it was lambing season right. I didn't think about and he that. is very busy yes, very busy <laughs> lambing season and on about June 15th his wife sent me an email saying that you know we received your letter and that we'd love to meet you so I I went to James farm and I spent the Where? day it's in the Lake District right. in Cumbria it's the most beautiful place on earth well, besides Snape. Um, it's just glorious. And I spent the day with, the, with James and the sheep and Helen and his family. And I asked James if he would co-write a folk tale with me, which would weave through a performance version of the album. And I also asked him if I could film him, or my team could film him and his sheep. And so he said yes to both. So the performance version will include um, this folk tale um, and also uh, quite a bit of imagery um, and my idea is that as an audience member you will be in the wild song that the images will be all around all around you that it's kind of a 3d experience are you aware of how you come across when you tell me that no i asked this somebody yesterday I asked this of somebody yesterday, but it was a it was in a coaching session, uh, and they were completely flummoxed by what I was saying. But it sounds as though you understand what I mean. Uh, you you tell a cracking story, you paint a a fantastic picture. Are you aware of that? Is that something you just instinctively do? Because when I hear you telling me about that, I just think, right, when is it? I want to see it. Why, yes. why are we still here? I, I'm very passionate about this project. I think that I think I, I want people to hear Britain's message that we are all connected and that we're, there's something bigger and more beautiful than we can see. And and we need to be aware of it and we need to take care of this earth because we, we only have one. And this is my way of saying that. And it for me it's it's urgent. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes and Audio Boom. To get in touch, tweet at Thoroughly Good, post a message on the Thoroughly Good Facebook page or email john.jacob at thoroughlygood.me.